Welcome to Chasing Compliance, the global regulatory writing and consulting podcast, where we discuss all aspects of regulatory strategy from bench to bedside. Today, I discuss systematic literature search and screening with Sarah DeValence. We discuss the purpose of systematic literature searches and screening, how to create robust search terms, common errors and consequences of poorly constructed searches, and how to best use search operators, including mesh terms. We also discuss what to do with your search results, the importance of strong inclusion and exclusion criteria, challenges of creating an unbiased screening system, and common errors in search screening. Sarah gives us some great tips for creating comprehensive and efficient search strategies and how to improve the quality and reproducibility of literature screening processes. A bit more about Sarah. Sarah completed a PhD in biomedical engineering from the University of Geneva in Switzerland and has worked for Stryker and Johnson & Johnson as a CER writer and manager. At Johnson & Johnson, she had the opportunity to manage a team focused directly on systematic literature reviews for CERs. Currently, she is a senior manager in the medical device team at Global, where she oversees AU regulatory writing and consulting activities. Enough with the intro, let's hear from Sarah. Thank you very much for coming on today. We really appreciate you taking time out of your busy day to come share some information about search search terms and article screening with us. Before we jump into all that, how did how did you move from academia into the private sector and into the regulatory space and ultimately towards global? Yeah, so I've been in the medical device industry for about seven years, I would say. And after I finished my PhD in academia, um, I was looking for um, a job where I had more flexibility and more diversity in the projects that I was working on. And um, I had worked for five years or six years on one project doing research, uh, and I was ready for working on expanding my expertise and expanding the types of projects I worked on. So I was looking to transfer to industry. Um, and I had some experience with proofreading and editing scientific publications. So I thought that selling myself as a, in the medical writing field would be a good entrance into the, into the medical device industry. And that's how I got my first job. And as those in this field know, once you start as a medical writer, and especially as soon as you start building some expertise around regulatory writing and CR writing, um, then it's hard to get out of that role because you're, the skill, these skills are highly sought after. So I've been working in this field for the last few years. Um, I have experience in large corporations. And then recently I decided to join Global, which is a smaller company. And I'm excited to also be on the other side of the fence and working with multiple clients um, in a smaller organization and contributing that way. Well, I know some medical writers don't really think too much about search terms. They get them when they get them and they trust that the information specialist or the librarian or some other person did a good job constructing them and they're valid and perfect and they just go on writing the report. What made you want to get into actually looking at search terms or how did you get pulled into this? So in with the new regulatory requirements, Clinical data is so important, and especially with MDR coming out, 
they're all all new. There's new requirements around having sufficient clinical evidence to support your devices. And we have to understand that literature is one of the big sources of clinical data that we're going to use to assess the safety and performance of our of our devices. So conducting a proper literature search is pivotal to the current regulatory environments. And if you don't master and if you don't know how to create solid uh, literature searches, you're going to miss out on data. And, and creating a good literature search can be the difference between making the decision to pull a device from the market or being able to find sufficient evidence to support it and keeping it on the market. So we have to understand that as medical writers and as um, being responsible for these literature searches, we have a big responsibility in terms of making sure our literature searches are comprehensive um, and that are and they're conducted properly. So um, I think, so you brought up uh, information specialists that conduct the search. I actually think the medical writer's role is complementary to the information specialist. Creating searches is very technical. There are, um, there's a lot of the booleans you have to use, the tags, the search symbols, creating proper syntax around search terms is really a specialized job. And that's where the information, the expertise of the information specialists come in. On the other hand, the medical writer who's starting to work on the CER, who's who's learned the device, who's learned the clinical space, can properly define the scope of the search. So medical writer has the responsibility of properly identifying what needs to be searched and how, and then the information specialist helps with the execution part. It's really easy to separate the two and say, oh, that's his or her job and this is my job. But really, the evidence that goes into your report is garnered from these searches. You know, we we generally try to refrain from doing ad hoc searching because it's not systematic in the way that, um, you know, created search terms into a database is and then screening the literature after the fact. So, you know, I think that that's a role that the medical writer should be involved in, but is it's often overlooked. Can you give me a couple examples of consequences from not having properly selected search terms? Do you have any experience with, you know, horror stories in your past? I've definitely seen a lot of situations where searches fell apart um, because the, the um, search terms weren't appropriate. So a couple situations is, as medical writers, we had designed a sophisticated search. We worked with information specialists. We pulled in a bunch of articles, did all the screening. And then, you know, we stood by our search saying that it was solid. We had found all the evidence about the device. And then your clinical or some other cross-functional people in the company, they start sending us article after article of stuff that we missed. And so, first of all, that's a bit embarrassing as a, when you're supposed to be the expert in terms of searching. Um, and then that exposes the importance of really paying attention to what you're doing when you're building these searches. Uh, because like, as I said earlier, missing a few articles that can really have significant implications on the future of the product could have implications on what indications stay and go and have, can have implications on whether a device stays on the market or not. So really learning how to conduct proper searches and making sure that the scope is correct and that the search terms are relevant and are going to pick up the relevant articles is really essential. So 
Taking a step back, we may have listeners that don't know exactly what you're talking about regarding search terms. Can you give us a little bit of background on how systematic search terms are created, um, how they're used, and what kind of methodology goes into creating them? Sure. So I think the first thing that I often see when new writers are getting into this space and starting to learn about literature searching, the first thing we have to understand is that the search is just one part of the systematic literature review. You have to think of the systematic literature review as a robust scientific method to answer a specific research question. So the first step in your literature review process is to define your research question, understand exactly what you're looking for and what questions you're trying to answer by doing this literature search. Once you've defined your scope and you know exactly what you're looking for, then you can start figuring out what databases you have to use, what search timeframes you have to use, and then you can go into determining your search terms. So we have to make sure that we don't, the search terms are is, you know, one of the step, and usually I can I'll often see writers that dive straight into writing out their search terms without properly thinking about why they're doing this search, what they're trying to get out of it. Um, and if you're unclear with those, you're going to miss things or you're going to set things up incorrectly in your search. So that's definitely a key step. And then the last, the, the other steps of the systematic literature review is the inclusion exclusion criteria and screening your, your results. Um, determining what you keep out of your search results is critical in the output in, in the output of the literature review process. Um, and if you don't have a clear understanding of your research question and what you're tr actually trying to get out of this literature review, uh, you can't build proper uh, inclusion exclusion criteria and then your whole literature review falls apart. So all of these steps are really important. And um, the last step would be the analysis of the data and making sense of the data that you got after screening. Um, and every step requires, you know, proper training, proper understanding of what you're doing and why, and then how to do it. That makes a lot of sense. You want to know what the needle looks like before you jump into the haystack. Do you think that there are any limitations to this search term methodology? Why don't we just use manual searches, looking for the things, the areas that we're interested in and parsing down the results that way? So I've seen older CERs where that was the, the method used where, you know, searches were shying away of the systematic approach because it often requires more work, more screening, you get a lot more results. And that can be when you know, when manually you can go off and find exactly the articles you want. And sometimes you have awareness of those articles already, but we can't be doing that for these regulatory requirements for a couple of reasons. So, um, First of all, the new regulations like MDR, they require a systematic search. And the reason why they want systematic literature reviews is to remove bias from that process. If you're just doing a manual search, um, you could easily ignore a whole part of the literature that maybe are talking about some complications that are not really in your favor. And no one would ever know whether you did that or you didn't do that. If you're following a systematic search, if you describe your methods properly, that should be re reproducible. And anyone that uh, decides to verify your, your methods and processes can ensure that 
there was no bias that was introduced in the selection of the articles. So in a way, it protects it protects you as a CR writer and as a medical device company because you show you can prove through the systematic methods that you've properly done your due diligence. And then it reassures notified bodies and patients that we have done our due diligence. So it's really in everybody, everybody everyone's benefit to uh, to follow the, the systematic approach. People may enter this thinking, hey, I'll just do some manual searches and we'll find all the articles that we need. But you end up getting a, a lot more results than if you had a well-constructed systematic uh, literature search. And you hit the nail on the head. I think that bias is a huge issue these days. And it's really easy to ignore unfavorable literature, even for, you know, the most ethical regulator, there's still pressures to potentially ignore things. This gives writers uh, an out, the notified body or whoever you turn these search terms in will reproduce the search, will see all the results and expect a systematic approach, um, not ignoring anything that's bad. And to that point, I've seen notified bodies pay very close attention to the searches that were used, to the inclusion exclusion criteria that was applied. And I've seen them really question and dig those methodologies to ensure that um, systematic approaches were followed. It makes a lot of sense. We don't, we don't want to miss anything good or bad. Yeah, exactly. I have had the luxury of experiencing some really poorly constructed searches um, that returned tons of results or far too few results and missed a huge tranche of research. You know, I've even seen search terms that lacked reproducibility, which is is less of an issue typically, but it does happen. And I, you know, I personally feel like these poorly constructed searches do introduce some type of bias, whether it's intentional or unintentional, it doesn't matter. We're biasing against the results. This is in my experience, pretty common when you're looking at a device that's used routinely as part of a procedure, but is not necessarily the focus of the paper. Um, it's I think it's easy to ignore some of that research, but I think you know there could be some really important information in those articles. What do you think are some consequences of poorly constructed search terms, and how can we avoid those? So I agree. With what you were saying, I think the biggest consequences of a bad search is missing relevant data or biasing the results. And I think both of those have can have severe consequences on the data that you're going to pull out and the conclusions that you're going to make about your device. So there's one thing that you need to keep in mind with medical devices, though, um, is that when when you search a database like PubMed, for example, there the fields of the articles that you can actually search are title, abstract, and then the metadata. So the metadata would be the mesh terms, for example, or, or any other index terms that are associated with, uh, with the article, like keywords and so on. You can't actually access the full text to, to, to search for keywords. And that's definitely one of the biggest challenges with searching on medical devices is that very commonly, the, the brand name of the device that you're trying to evaluate is only going to be mentioned in the method section within the full text. It's actually pretty rare that the brand name is mentioned in the abstract itself. And um, so and if you limit yourself to only looking 
for articles that mention the specific brand name of your device in the abstract, you're, you're only looking at the tip of the iceberg. And you have to understand that limitation and you have to make sure that you're using searching the databases correctly um, and you have to consider possibly using other tools that allow you to scan full text articles such as Quosa or Google Scholar. So understanding the tools, understanding the limitations of the databases that you use and how to use that to your advantage and then possibly complementing that with additional search tools such as Quosa and Google Scholar, which are not databases, they're just tools, they're search engines um, for data to help complement your search are definitely some strategies that should be considered. That makes a lot of sense. Are there a couple of simple but key errors that you see that are commonly made across the regulatory space? So one of the, coming back to, to my previous point, I would definitely, I definitely see that sometimes searching directly for the device brand name and limiting your search only to the device brand name, you're definitely going to miss some data. And if you're not accounting for that, um, you, you're going to miss uh, relevant, relevant information. Um, another, another error I see is including search terms related to outcomes in your search terms. So in CERs, when you're conducting a CER, you select you, you determine performance and safety outcomes that you want to, you know, that you want to assess. So it's tempting in a way to include the key complications that you're looking for, for example, in your search terms, because thinking, oh, I definitely want to know, you know, any cases of infection, for example. Well, if you start adding your, the term infection to your search, you have to keep in mind that only articles that mention that specific word are going to show up. So if the article uses any other alternative word to describe an infection, or maybe just uses the blanket word of complication or adverse event, or possibly even doesn't even mention it in the abstract, you're going to miss that article. So you have to understand that sometimes less is more in terms of a search term. And even though your intentions are good to say, I definitely want to get all the articles that have infection, well, you would actually get, have a better chance of getting them all if you don't add the word infection rather than putting it in. So that's a bit counterintuitive, but the more you work on, uh, on searching, the more you figure that out. That's really important to understand when you're billing search terms. Another pitfall is using not queries. And a common example is when you're doing a search for, you know, looking for safety and like clinical articles on the safety and performance of your device. Let's say you know off the bat that you're not interested in any non-clinical articles. So you could include a query in your search that says not animal or not rat or not pig or to exclude those articles that discuss animal models. The problem with that is that it occasionally happens that some clinical articles in the introduction might say, oh, we conducted an animal study last year and now we're doing a clinical series with 100 patients. Well, you're going to lose that article because it said the word animal. So you have to be very careful with not queries. And in my experience, I've usually found that not queries end up just causing more problems than the benefit that you get out of it. You might end up, and regardless, animal studies are so easy to screen out. Uh, when you read the abstract or even through the title, you should pretty quickly 
be able to identify the, by the, the article type? And is it really worth running the risk of missing out on key articles by using those not queries? I think it's, it's a bit dangerous. I see that all the time. I absolutely, yeah, we, you know, it's, it's a common operator to exclude preclinical data or, um, you know, any type of not relevant articles, not monkeys, not et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I think that that is a point that's missed by a lot of people. If they even mention that anywhere in the article, it's, it's possible that the article will be excluded to counter that. If you do include those terms, you may get way more results. Would you say that it's worth the time screening those articles? If you don't include those operators, do you get a lot of valuable information from that that wouldn't be captured uh, with them in? Or do you think that, you know, you kind of got to weigh the pros and the cons and run the search either way? The thing is, I mean, I think it's worth looking into on a case-by-case basis. So let's say you have a search, you run it with none of your not operators and you get 100 articles back. 100 articles, you can screen it in a day. I don't think it's worth trying to limit it further and further and potentially missing losing out articles that are relevant by adding all these very restrictive queries. It's uh, 100 articles is manageable and you can move forward with, with screening that, that set. If you start getting searches that have maybe 2,000, 3,000 results and that's going to be very heavy, then you do have to, you can look back at your, your terms and figure out why you're getting so many results. And maybe, maybe before running the not query, run a query that says an and monkey, rat, animal or whatever and see how many articles you're getting from that. And then you can even scan those quickly. And if you feel like, you know, you're fairly confident and there's maybe there's a huge chunk of the, of the 2000 results that are animal, then possibly you can consider, you know, using those not queries. But I, and, and I would definitely advise against using them in standard searches because of the risk of misusing them and getting rid of um, stuff that you shouldn't. Especially if the not query excludes some research. I'm thinking of a specific example where there was a lot of pivotal trials done in animals for a device. And there were clinical studies that referenced that trial in the discussion. And they were all excluded. And a manual search after the fact, because there was the product specialist thought that there was a ton of data, knew that there were several articles that we missed and you know couldn't understand where they went. Well, that's where they went. I mean, it, it's just a, you know, it's, I understand the process and why would one would want to do that, but the risk is probably too great in a lot of scenarios. Yeah, and it's really hard to find those articles again once you've excluded them with a knot and they've fallen off the radar. It's really hard to come back and understand why they didn't show up and and um, and to fix your search so that those do come in. So I think it's definitely safer to steer away from the not query as much as possible. And beyond that, it it calls the search into question both internally and from the notified body standpoint, if you do decide to go forward with that, the the auditors at the notified body are likely going to be experts in the field and understand the research. They may not have read every single article ever published in that space, but they're going to have a pretty good idea. And if you're missing pivotal trials, they're going to pick up on that and they're going to wonder why. 
I can think of one more um, watch out for search terms. Perfect. And I see this with uh, novice um, literature searchers, like new writers that are kind of giving it a go at the, at, on their, in their first projects. There's, you can't confuse um, the, the fact that search terms are, are, they're just words, they're not concepts. So when you're looking for, when you're trying to cover a concept, uh, so for example, um, coronary artery disease, um, that's the concept, but an author could potentially use different words to describe that particular clinical condition. So they could say, you know, thrombosis, or they could say, um, you know, heart failure, or there are different different ways of describing the same concept with different, with words. So if you're trying to develop concepts, describe, sorry, if you're trying to develop search terms, make sure that you as a searcher understand the concepts that you need to cover. And then you need to break down those concepts and figure out what are all the different terms that authors can use to describe this one concept. And if you're missing key words that describe that one concept, you're going to end up missing some articles that are definitely relevant to what you're, what you're looking for. That's a great point. And I think, I think some people use mesh terms to accomplish that, to, to circumvent that. Would you suggest, A, can you give us a little bit of background on what a mesh term is? And then would you suggest using mesh terms routinely or not? Yeah, definitely. That's a, that's a, that's a great point. So PubMed uses mesh terms, Embase, I think they call them index terms. These are concepts that are manually added to articles. So when you, when PubMed adds new publications to, to their system, they scan those articles and they determine what the topic is and they match it back to a mesh concept. So they have, and you can look it up, they have a whole tree, a whole mesh tree. So for example, you have uh, surgery will be a high level item in the mesh tree. Under surgery, you'll have heart surgery, abdominal surgery, all the different types of surgery. Under abdominal heart surgery, you'll have liver transplantation. You'll have there's probably even a few between liver transplantation and abdominal surgery. But it breaks down all these medical concepts and medical subjects um, and maps them back to this and, and maps your article back to this, uh, this concept tree. Uh, this is really helpful for creating uh, comprehensive literature searches because it circumvents this this problem of all the different words authors can use to describe the same thing. Um, so by identifying the mesh terms that apply to your um, to your topic, you can in adding those to your search queries, you can ensure that you have a much more comprehensive search strategy. One watch out with mesh terms is that there's often a lag between when an article is uploaded to PubMed and when the mesh terms are mapped to that article. So mesh terms can are great tools to incorporate into your search strategy, but it doesn't, you can't consider that they are going to be a hundred percent. So I would recommend definitely adding the search, the mesh terms, but also adding the, the search words um, that Matt, that describe your concept as well and using both together to make sure your search is comprehensive. So there's no harm in, on using both mesh terms and in, in terms included within the mesh. 
No. So for example, if you, uh, if you're interested in, uh, liver transplantation, then you can say, you can search for the mesh term for liver transplantation, and then you could put and liver transplantation just in plain word. And so that would cover, that would cover both. And an article would likely get, get hit from both, from both the words themselves that are in the abstract and the mesh term that's been mapped to that one. But, um, you, you wouldn't get duplicate results out of that. It deduplicates de the results once you, uh, once the search is run. So there's no harm in being redundant in your search. I mean, my, my mind automatically snaps to hematoma, which can be spelt differently in the U.S. and the EU. I mean, there's hundreds of those terms. If you did the U.S. spelling and you were looking for worldwide research, you may miss H-E-A, hematoma, but it would be captured using the MeSH term. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The different spellings and the, uh, you know, synonyms, British versus other alternative sp spellings, potentially trademark symbols. Um, all of those things are watch outs for searching because search databases are, are sensitive to those. So you have to be careful and make sure all those variations are properly accounted for in your queries. So you've given us some really good tips so far. Are there any other tips for constructing rig rigorous search terms that you'd like to discuss? Um, you know, how should we integrate our PICO table? How do we, you know, if we're not developing a, P developing a PICO table, should we base these searches off of pivotal papers in the field or our understanding? Is there anybody that we can pull in from outside to help us with this? Yeah, so I can walk you through the process that I follow when I am starting to develop search terms for a new project. Um, so first of all, you mentioned the PICO table. This is a great tool that I definitely recommend using. It helps you organize your thoughts and lay out the different concepts that you need to cover in your search. It forces you to consider all the different aspects. So population, intervention, comparators, outcomes, study design, forces you to consider all those things and question whether it is relevant or it's not relevant to your search. So the first thing I'm going to start about the PICOS table is just at a high level, those different categories of terms. Before you start just throwing terms in, Start by consider what, considering what is actually going to be relevant to your, to your search. So under um, a few of those categories that are especially for you know, subject device searching, um, the O is for outcomes. And you have to question whether it's going to be appropriate to include outcome terms in your search. And we brought this up earlier where it's, it can be dangerous to include outcome terms um, directly in a search query, it actually would be more comprehensive to, to not include those terms and to just keep your search broad to make sure you cover all the outcomes. So consider that. And then if that's the if that's the approach that you're taking for this search, then in that next to the O for the PICO, you can say, um, you know, all outcomes will be considered. Therefore, no specific outcome terms will be included in this search. That helps that's helped you organize your thought. It helps you justify and think about what you're going to do and what you're not going to pursue in your, in your search terms. Study design is similar to the, to the outcomes. Are you going to create limitations in terms of study design in your search? Are you going to include case, rep uh, case reports? Are you going to include 
conference proceedings, um, but about foreign language articles as well. It gives you a placeholder and a place to really think about those things as you're developing your search. Now back to population intervention. Those are really the two big categories that are going to require the most work in terms of developing your, your search terms. So what I like to do is I, I go back and forth between identifying my search terms and then testing and refining those search terms. So what I like to do is I like to start from known articles. So usually I'll review the previous CER. Sometimes if there's an extraction table, um, I'll scan that to make sure to look at, you know, the indications of how, actually, I'm going to back up. <laughs> I said we start with articles. That's actually not correct. You have to start with the IFU. You have to look at what this device is intended for. And that needs, that's the first thing that needs to go into your PICOS table. So what are the different indications? And that would fall under both um, population. For, for example, if the indication define a specific anatomical location, for example, or a specific gender. Um, and then intervention is what's the, what, what, what surgery or what type of treatment is this device used for? And so that would also usually be described in your, in your intended use or, or indication statement. So once you define those high level concepts, then you have to start diving through the articles to make sure that you have all those synonyms and that your concepts are properly covered. Um, and you can also start thinking about combinations of terms. So um, what I like to do is first review articles from the previous CER, look at their abstracts. When I have a known article, I like pulling it up in PubMed because I pull up the abstract and then in PubMed, um, under the abstract, you can expand the mesh terms and see all the mesh terms that were used in that, that were uh, added to that study. So once you start opening three or four different articles, you can see the commonalities in the mesh terms and you'll be able to identify which mesh terms you might want to include in your search as well. Um, another trick that I found really helpful is using Google Scholar. So Google Scholar is a search, is a, is, um, a search engine, it's not a database. Problem with Google Scholar, and the reason why it gets a bit of a bad rap is because the source, the sources behind Google Scholar are constantly shifting. Nobody really knows what's in Google Scholar and what's not in Google Scholar, and that keeps shifting, meaning if you run one search one day and run it, you know, two days later, you might end up getting less results two days later, you might get more results. So the reproducibility is is questionable because it's not um, it's not monitored. The content and the data that's inside Google Scholar isn't monitored the way like proper literature databases are monitored. However, it's a great tool because you can very quickly scan articles and it allows you to search. It has the capability of searching the full text article rather than just the abstract. So if you search for a device brand name, you'll have a much better idea of what's out there in Google Scholar versus just searching for the device brand name in PubMed. So searching Google Scholar, you can quickly scan, just by scanning the titles of the articles, you can see the main concepts of the articles that are mentioning your product and make sure, make, and you can make sure that all of those are covered in your, um, in your search terms. Uh, and then once you find some relevant articles in Google Scholar, you can open them in PubMed, scan the abstract to look for some of these, those key terms 
look for synonyms and different spellings of the words that you already have in your PICOS table, complete your PICOS table, and then start considering combinations of terms um, and whether you need to, whether certain terms should be standalone concepts um, combined with an or, or if they can be combined with an and. So, and that, that would be the last step of, of your search of your determining your search terms is really thinking about uh, the combinations of these terms. Can you give us a couple examples of how you would combine search terms? Sure. So there are different ways to combine terms. And when you're building your search, it's really important to understand what your possibilities are for combining terms and then how to use it. At the beginning of this podcast, we mentioned information specialists and I definitely acknowledge that creating these complicated queries and using all these complicated operators that are used in database searches is the expertise of an information specialist. And so for this part of for this part of the search, I would definitely recommend working with your information specialist if you are lucky to have one and work together to figure out what the appropriate combination combinations of your search terms would be. So you would as a medical writer that knows the space that gone through a lot of articles that know what the, the knows what you're trying to get to, you can explain to the information specialist in plain terms, and then the information specialist would, would translate that into database search queries. On the other hand, as a medical writer, it's really important to understand the tools that the information specialist has to do that. So there's a few things that you can do. So you can, you can search, there are the basic operators like and and or. Um, and means that you take two terms, and if you and them, they just have to appear anywhere um, in the metadata of that of that article, abstract, title, mesh terms, whatever. Um, or means that one term, one term or the other term. So as long as one of the two terms appears, then that article would be retrieved. Another way, there's a you can also search for phrases. So for example, if you put two words, and then put quotations around the two words, then you're searching specifically for that phrase. So if you put liver transplantation in quotations, if there's an article that talks about liver in the title and talks about transplantations in the conclusions, it's not gonna pick up that article. It'll only pick it up if it has that specific phrase. That's actually really powerful to understand and to use that because it can really help you get rid of stuff that's definitely not relevant because your concept might be defined by a specific phrase. If you put those two words out of context, then, then it definitely wouldn't be the concept you're going after. So that's really important. Another fancier way of searching for phrases is that sometimes you might have a certain phrase, but, but you might have maybe those two words can be separated by other words. So for example, if you are looking for electrosurgical probes, for example, as a generic device name, you could maybe one article is going to say electrosurgical stainless steel probe. Well, that's still relevant, but there's that word stainless steel that's in the middle of your, the phrase that you're looking, that you're looking for. So the way to, to get around that is to use the adjacency tools and many data databases allow you to work with adjacencies to define adjacencies between terms. So if electrosurgical and probe is the phrase that you're looking for, but you acknowledge that some some articles might be throwing in words between those two keywords. You can say that you want electrosurgical and probe with an adjacency of five words, for example. So if the word 
probe and electrosurgical are within five words of each other, then it's going to keep that article. And that gives you a lot more options that are covered within that, within that combination of terms. But also, it, it's going to get rid of those articles where probe is completely separated from electrosurgical. And that really is completely outside of the concept that you're, you're trying to capture. So understanding those tools and, and using them properly can be really powerful in, in creating a, a good search and can avoid pulling in a, a lot of irrelevant articles that are off topic. I think adjacencies aren't super well known. And I think that those are wonderful tools for people that really want to use a phrase, but are really scared to just, you know, electrosurgical probe, right? Put those two together because it could potentially eliminate several important articles. And so what they do is they just do individual words and then they get a lot more terms than they necessarily, or they get a lot more results than they necessarily need. That can be a really powerful tool for improving efficiency. One thing that I thought was really interesting that you mentioned was that you do a PICO table first or PICO table first, and then you create your search terms. I've definitely seen the inverse happen and I think, you know, you hit on one really good point, which is that the, the Pico should feed into the searches, not vice versa. So you are a medical writer, um, say you're working on a product um, in a, a therapeutic space that you're not really familiar with. It's probably better to reach out to somebody to help you build this table and then for you to create your search terms as opposed to, you know, I'm going to run a bunch of searches and then see what I get back. And then I'm going to design my table based on that. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, defining the scope of your search by using the Pico's table is extremely important. For me, that's really the first step that you need to do. And, and you can go off and do your own searches, test certain queries, test certain terms using PubMed, using Google Scholar, but that should always feed back into your PICO table where you're defining the different concepts that you need to search and laying out all the different terms that you need to build into your search. And only once, and I like to say when you're building, when you're designing a search, don't be afraid to kind of go down that rabbit hole and get lost in articles and searches and, you know, follow that train of thought where you see one article, it mentions another article, go look at that other article and after a while, you'll notice that you're just going in circles and that you're not finding any more new concepts or new terms. That's when you know that you have a pretty robust search strategy. And only at that point can you start really building the technical queries of your search. And then only at that point do you have sufficient knowledge and understanding of, this, of uh, the topic and how it's being described in the literature to, proper, to properly make decisions about how you're going to combine these terms and how you're going to build your search queries. I think that's a great piece of advice. Dive in. And once you see or start seeing things come up over and over and over again, you know that you've probably met the quota and you, you're really looking at the whole field as opposed to a subset um, because it's really easy to artificially select a subset of research based on search terms. I mean, not really easy, but it definitely happens. And of course, un unintentional or not, that's a form of bias. So I think that's a great piece of advice. One more follow up question. Piggybacking off the not operator discussion earlier, do you think that that should people not be afraid to use an exclusionary criteria for study type or their for their literature? Will that still 
not limit the amount of, I mean, obviously it will limit the evidence based on the study type, but it will still give an accurate picture. Or do you think that there is potentially um, some hazard in doing that? And one thing that I can think of is um, if the study type is not readily discernible, um, it may be excluded by the system. Yeah, definitely. I think so databases like PubMed, the study type, certain study types are part of the metadata associated to the article. So reviews, for example, there is, um, you know, it's a bibliogra bibliographic field associated with that article that labels that article as a review. So you can leverage that metadata field to exclude reviews, for example, if that's what you want to do. I would definitely be cautious around using plain words to exclude certain study designs or to filter your results based on study design. I think it's appropriate to use to leverage those that, those metadata fields, but I would definitely not create a query that says, you know, not like review, for example, because review could be used in many other contexts in the in the in the abstract, for example, or title or or whatever. So definitely know what tools you have to work with and then use them in an appropriate way. And I think the whole question about including or excluding certain study designs, I mean, that comes back to properly defining your research question at the beginning and understanding what study designs allow you to answer that research question. And that has to be a decision that's made upfront around the strategy of your overall systematic literature review. And then you have to figure out how you incorporate that into your, or how or if potentially you incorporate that into your, into your search terms. And we briefly discussed the case of non-clinical articles. It might be worth just leaving that to the manual screening step to exclude those articles rather than trying to create these complicated queries that sort through those articles for you or you have a high risk of excluding something that's actually relevant. That's right, everybody. You heard it. The research question doesn't go away. I think for some of us who did our training in academia may break out in cold sweats when we hear the word research question, because because <laughs> it was uh, it was beaten to us from an uh, from an early uh, from an early point in our careers. But I mean, it, it really is important. I mean, really. This is a scientific process. You do need to come up with a research question. You do need to come up with a hypothesis. I mean, your output is only going to be as good as your research question because everything is based off of that. So don't be afraid. Nobody's looking. I mean, a lot of people are looking, but your mentor is not looking and you're out of graduate school. So take a deep breath, but definitely consider your hypothesis and your research question. Okay. So we've run our searches. We have a ton of results. Um, we need to screen in and screen out some of these articles. Um, rigorous and unbiased screening processes really help us capture all of the relevant evidence without excluding anything that could be relevant. Um, even if it's good or bad or just downright ugly, we still want to include it uh, to describe the safety and performance of whatever we are trying to get approval for, regulatory approval for. So I know that there are se several ways to go about article screening. What are your thoughts on picking a process? Do you have a favorite process? Are some markedly better than others? So in terms of screening, so screening is definitely you know, along with the search, doing the search screening is, in my opinion, just as important as the search terms, because that's when you're going to determine what's what ends up getting in, included in your search, just like your search determined 
what you're pulling from the databases, your inclusion exclusion determines out of what you pulled, what are you actually going to keep? So it's it's the second step of the search, right? Where you're manually finishing that screening of the data that's available and determining what's relevant. So there are different methods in terms of, do you do abstract screening? Do you do full test screening? What types of tools do you use for screening? And I think a lot of those are different methods to do it, but they should all achieve the same goal, which is including what's relevant and properly excluding what's not relevant. And I say properly because you have to be able to justify why any article is being thrown out. You've gone through the process of creating a search that was systematic to identify articles from the database. But now if your inclusion exclusion criteria isn't systematic and is, you know, up to interpretation and different screeners are going to end up like conducting the screening different ways, your whole systematic approach can fall apart in your inclusion exclusion and in the screening process. So it's just as important to have a rigorous process and rigorous methods for uh, your screening. Exactly. I mean, you work so hard to build these unbiased search terms and, you know, one can argue, great, we've got all these results. We've, we've got everything, but now we're going to have a human set about picking what articles we include and exclude. That seems like it's inherently going to include bias. And my personal belief is if you do it correctly, that doesn't happen. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I completely agree. And in my experience of having built many, many searches and having having had many people work on screening for projects that I've been involved in, the biggest lesson I've learned is that interpretation should be taken out of the inclusion exclusion process. You should be able to screen and answer specific questions by yes or no that guide you towards the ultimate decision of inclusion exclusion. And you have to break down that process and understand you have to have a clear understanding of what you want to in include. And you also have, a, have to have a clear understanding of what types of articles are going to get thrown out and are not relevant and why those articles aren't relevant. And you have to pick apart all the different reasons why they potentially could be not relevant to help guide the screening process. So one thing I would advise against, for example, is using exclusion reasons that are too vague. So for example, something that says an exclusion reason that says like not relevant. So there's so many ways you can interpret that the article is not relevant. I mean, and basically that not relevant to what not, not relevant. It doesn't tell you anything about why the screener made the decision to get rid of that article. And it could be not relevant. Basically, when you think of it, any exclusion criteria, any article that's excluded could be excluded for that reason of not relevant. So you have to think about why an article is not relevant. Is it not on potentially your article does not use your subject device? Well, that's a reason why it wouldn't be relevant. Well, then make that a specific exclusion criteria so that anyone screening doesn't get confused about that inclusion exclusion criteria. Another another criteria that I've seen is other. And so other just gives you the option of excluding an article for any reason. But that also defeats the systematic approach because you have to have clear reasons why you include exclude. And in the end, make sure you set up your inclusion exclusion criteria where if you have five people do screening, you should get five times the same inclusion exclusion list. And that's really dependent on how clear and how, how specific your exclusion criteria is. 
piggybacking off of that, a really strong set of inclusion exclusion criteria is, is really important. I've seen exclusion and inclusion criteria that were so robust that while they did include a something like an other or not relevant for the review selection, it was almost never used, except for in the cases of I have no idea how the search picked up these articles. They're just absolutely in left field. But, you know, you really can, with proper exclusion criteria, pick a reason for everything. And I think that really does improve reproducibility. Yeah, definitely. And maybe one tip I would give screeners, because it's you might end up working on a screening or working on a project where the inclusion exclusion criteria was defined for you before, and you don't really have a choice of using them. But if you feel like there's any exclusion criteria that's not very clear, make sure you document your true reason for excluding that article. So if there is a uh, an exclusion reason for other or not relevant, make sure in a notes column or as a note to that to that um, screening, you properly articulate why you determine that that article is not relevant. And that will help with the traceability. People, people will look, I mean, these things will get audited. I mean, it, it's easy to fall in the pattern, especially using automated systems of not providing a rationale, but just picking an exclusion criteria and then going forward, you know, it's a long day. You've got 2000 results, the project's due soon, et cetera, et cetera. People do look at these notified bodies do take a look. So it, it is important to describe exactly why things are included or rather excluded. More importantly, what are some common errors that either you have made or you've observed over your tenure screening? I'm sure tens of thousands of articles. Yeah, I think common errors for screening often happen because you're going too fast and it's tempting to just want to knock it out quickly because you have hundreds of articles to get through and you really need to move on to your draft and, and get this over and done with. But it is very easy to make mistakes if you're going too fast. And on that topic, using control F, so searching your document for key terms, like searching your, your PDF or for, for specific terms. And generally this is used when you're searching for subject device literature and you're, and you look for the brand name of your device. Well, I think this is a very helpful tool and I use it all the time when I'm searching. You have to be very careful with the way you use it and you have to understand its limitations and understand its value. So my uh, recommendation when you start screening an article is a couple things. First of all, be careful with abstract only screening. Some articles, it might look like from the abstract, the abstract might not be written very well. It might look like it's a review, for example, but then you open it up and actually it's a full clinical study. So be careful about coming to quick conclusions about the study design or what the article is about based on just the abstract. I definitely recommend as much as possible to open the full text if there's any doubt about the study, the scope of the, the study. Then when you do open the full text, what I what I usually do is, and if I'm screening for a certain device, for example, I will probably use the control F and look for the, the device. So maybe the most, the first situation, let's say, the device name doesn't show up with your control F. So that doesn't mean that you can close the article and say exclude. It doesn't mention the device. You're only on step one of the control F shortcut. You have to consider a shortcut. It's definitely not an appropriate and complete screening method. If it does, if your article, if your device name doesn't show up, 
then you still have to scroll to the methods section, scan the methods question with your own, with your own eyes and try to find uh, and make sure that the device isn't mentioned. I've seen sometimes where control F didn't work because the brand name was, was uh, split across two lines, for example, or there was some kind of typo in it or something like that. And so sometimes I'll also use control F to search for the company name as kind of a second pass. And then before I start doing my, my manual screening with my and reading the article itself, but you can't exclude an article until you've actually done that physical reading of the methods to make sure that the device isn't, uh, wasn't, you know, wasn't mentioned and wasn't used in the study. So if control, if you use control F and you do find the device, then that makes it, that's a lot easier on your eyes because you don't have to read that whole article. You know where it's mentioned and right away you can try, you can focus on that section of the article that describes your, that describes your device and identify whether it was used in the study or maybe it was just mentioned in the discussion and actually it's not used in the study and you can, you can do your screening that way. But I definitely caution um, around relying too heavily on control F because I've seen errors from screening if that's if that's done too much. I've definitely seen it where the authors have put in part of the name of the device and no manufacturer name because it's a standard device in the field or they've spelled it wrong or they partially include the manufacturer. I've seen incorrect manufacturers like X device from Y manufacturer absolutely wouldn't be the case. And there's also scenarios where it cannot be anything else but they don't measure or don't mention the device name or manufacture itself. And without going to the methods section and doing the proper screening, you're going to totally miss that and think, you know, the device isn't mentioned, but it, it couldn't be any other way. Yeah, definitely. I completely agree. There are so many situations that would uh, create, you know, cause situations where you would miss relevant data. And that's really what you don't want to do in screening. Cause once you exclude an article, Finding it again, it's never going to happen, <laughs> you know, so it's really important to uh, make sure you're doing your due diligence there. And we are all busy and this process takes a lot of time, but it pays dividends to do it correctly from the beginning, because if you have to go back and try to do this again or there's any question, it's going to be far more time in the long run. You want to put out a, you know, a really good quality document the first time. I mean, that's how we feel here. But I, I, I tell you, it's, it's a lot easier in the long run. Just do it right from the beginning. Exactly. Anything else to add as far as best practices or tips for article screening? I can think of two more tips. The first one is a tip about your inclusion exclusion criteria. I find it really helpful when a hierarchy is determined in the inclusion exclusion criteria, because sometimes Articles might meet multiple inclusion-exclusion criteria. And for consistency, if you number your inclusion-exclusion criteria saying, consider one, and if one doesn't apply, consider two. If two doesn't apply, that, that allows consistency across different screeners if multiple people are working on the project. And it removes one more layer of random decision-making when you're screening according to those inclusion-exclusion criteria. So I found that helpful, especially when multiple people are working on the same sets of articles, it really helps consistency. If you do have help screening your results, you definitely want consistency across all of the, the screeners. And I think that people, if you don't specifically create that structure, their default mode is going to be, you know, select whatever makes the most sense and move on, right? Without actually taking the time to think about how this is screened in the context of all of the inclusion exclusion criteria they just want to bin it and move on but that can cause errors 
Yeah, definitely. I, I agree. And I think that brings me to the last piece of advice I would have is, you know, when in doubt, ask the question, because this process is so critical to everything that we're trying to do with, um, you know, the CER and also supporting our supporting medical devices with, with proper clinical data. If there's any doubt about the relevance of an article or what, or um, about any processes or inclusion exclusion criteria, it's definitely better to have a conversation about that rather than having to rescreen 500 articles because we realized that we excluded stuff we shouldn't have. So definitely have conversations when you're not sure and um, and ask for other for ask questions and ask for advice when you need it. Yeah, and don't hesitate to seek alignment from your colleagues. It's worth the half an hour or hour to screen some things that they have to make sure that you've got alignment. And if you don't, then have a conversation, ask questions. Um, you know, absolutely. The team approach can be wonderful in this scenario. Uh, I think people are hesitant to do it because one, pe one person wants to handle it. So it's all done the same way. For many bench scientists, this harkens back to the day of you don't want anybody else running your ELISAs because your coefficient of variance is going to be off. And, you know, you questions of can or cannot trust your data, but you can structure this process just like you can structure search screens to be reproducible. You can absolutely structure your inclusion and exclusion criteria so that everybody's doing the same thing. It, it should be rigorous and systematic. And as long as they have a, you know, an understanding of the field, which they should, then it shouldn't be a problem. Yeah, I completely agree. It's not as hard as it seems. You just have to have a proper structure to do it. Yep. Don't be afraid of letting people help. So thank you very much for all the, the all that advice. That's fantastic for all the listeners in the show notes, be including definitions about uh, what a mesh term is, any of the abbreviations that we used, and point you towards some resources for developing search terms and processes for screening articles. There are guidances from regulatory bodies on both um, that are extremely helpful, and those will be available in the show notes. We like to wrap up the episodes with something a little bit, little bit different. We like to talk about what we do on our Friday nights, what our favorite Friday night is, what we're doing this Friday. Work is hard. Life is hard. Luckily, we get to celebrate the weekend sometimes on Friday nights. What is your favorite way to either spend your Friday or to celebrate after the approval of a big regulatory document or general big win? Yeah. Um let me think. I think the first thing I like to do is get out of my office and get some fresh air. <laughs> because if I've been uh, finishing a big deliverable, I'm sure I've probably spent quite a number of hours in, in my office and I'm ready for a change of scenery. So I would probably pack the car, go camping, take my bike and go on a ride somewhere and, you know, get some fresh air and enjoy um, doing other things than, than being in the office. But I definitely love the, the thrill of successfully completing a big project. Um, it, it's definitely, it is rewarding. So are you stay till six o'clock on Fridays or do you like to leave the office early? <laughs> um, probably leave the office early. <laughs> I'm ready for a break when the end of the week comes. Road bike or mountain bike or both? Mostly road bike. I think my favorite Friday, I'm a definitely cruise out of the office early on Fridays. There's something really rewarding about that. And typically you know, by that Friday afternoon, you've hit 
a little over 40 hours most weeks. Um, so it's, you know, reasonable. And I also like to go for long bike rides. That is my ideal Friday night right now. It's beautiful where I live. And so I'll try to, you know, do a two, two and a half hour mountain bike ride and just get totally lost in the mountains. It's a great way to decompress. Nice. Thank you for listening to this episode of Chasing Compliance. And once again, a big thank you to Sarah for joining us today. If you have any further questions regarding the topics we discussed on today's show, please don't hesitate to reach out to us directly through email at info at globalrwc.com or by visiting our website at www.globalrwc.com. There you can find a more detailed description of what we've covered in the show, links to resources and other episodes of the podcast, as well as more information regarding our approach to solving a variety of regulatory challenges. If you enjoyed this show, please subscribe, leave a review, or better yet, share this with your colleagues. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or any of your favorite podcast apps that you're listening on right now. With that, have a great rest of your week, and we'll see you next time.